I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Welcome. So we're on holiday or on vacation. Yes, we are. We're taking a bit of time off. So Lauren is actually, well, don't triangulate your location, but far away from the van. I'm uh, stuffing my face with turkey right now. Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy holidays. It's not just Christmas. There's other things happening. Very true. Very true. Monica, Kwanzaa. I've decided I'm going to start celebrating Kwanzaa, actually. I don't know anything about that. You're going to have to enlighten me. Yeah, well, it started as a response to the Watts Rebellion in 1966, so 1965 in LA. And it's just, it's great. It's, there's so much really interesting symbolism. There's a whole like anti-capitalist approach. So like on okay. the last day of Kwanzaa, instead of buying presents, you make something. Kwanzaa's right up your alley as a crafter. <laughs> I'm going to look that up. I'll um, drop what I find in the show. Super. So what you're about to listen to is part two of a very, very long episode we recorded about consultancies and our work and what we do and all that good stuff. And if you haven't already listened to part one, go back and listen to it. We released it last week. Hopefully you will enjoy part two and part three. Indeed. Part three coming soon. So stay tuned. That'll be out uh, next week. Great. (laughs) (laughs) hope everyone's having a great break and if you're not breaking we're hoping that you're finding time to rest restore rejuvenate getting ready for whatever the fuck 2023 is going to be who knows yeah exactly rest relax rejuvenate we will see you all in 2023 bye bye i think the thing about time is clients seem to forget you're a human being Absolutely. (laughs) And that you've got bills to pay. You've got like other stuff that's happening in your universe. And so they can slow walk uh, an invoice, submitting an invoice, even if you've got payment terms attached to it. They can slow walk the signing of a contract, the start date. So if they say, right, we're going to put this, we want this to happen between this month and this month. And you think, oh, great. I fill in my little pipeline so I know we've got some income coming up you know in this point I don't need to stress out I don't need to panic and then they're like oh actually you know what it's not going to happen for another month or so or whatever it's just that time and not being careful with the time and not on so there's that one piece I'd say there's also another piece where they don't quite realize that all of it is time so you know we weren't so good in the beginning about making sure that we were keeping track of things like meetings with clients we weren't so good at like putting that into you know our budgets and things like that and so we inadvertently would just spend loads of time chatting to people about things that could be done in an email because it was more comfortable for them to have weekly meetings with us or three four five times a week with us which was a good learning I think for us definitely Um, and I mean there's definitely something behind that in that If clients want to have those chatty, meaningful, participatory, in-depth conversations, they've got to pay for it. (laughs) Um, And clients will very willingly take advantage of you if you're willing to put your time forth. And it's on you and your team or whoever you're with or yourself to push back and and put the boundaries around your time. Completely agree. Yeah. Power. I mean, we touched on it just then, didn't we, really, in terms of... Well, even with the invoicing and all of that, they've got the power over you. They can withhold that money even if it's like, you know, for bureaucratic or administrative reasons, mm. you're tied, like you are waiting for them to to pay you. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate that every single client that we've had has delayed a payment in some way or another, <laughs> even if it was by accident. Yeah. You know, and I think that says a lot about how people view 
consultants, as you say. I think that's an interesting thing that we've said back to a particularly nefarious a serial consultant abuser. That's we should have a list. Um, <laughs> is that you know if you want to talk about being a feminist organization, if you want to talk about being this really participatory, like we're so whatever, you have to realize that. Sure, you can do this kind of stuff with us because we have relatively privileged positions to be able to hold the risk in a different way. But if you're thinking about using consultants who aren't as privileged as we are, this doesn't work. Absolutely. It does not work. It doesn't work to have three months go by before a person sees a payment. Like that that doesn't work. And that's barely like we can't really even work in that situation. And that's probably why I'm complaining about it so much because it's really uncomfortable. And we had to say back to them, look, you're putting us in a very uncomfortable financial position because we've been working for you for three months and we still haven't seen a payment yet. So I think there needs to be an appreciation across anybody who's bringing consultants that your payment models, your contracting models, sure, you may have an invoicing model of like 30 days, but if you want to be working with people who aren't us type of people, yeah, then you need to close those windows and you need to pay people in a regular, with some regularity. Otherwise you're just reinforcing the system where only kind of certain people are able to do consultancies with you, whether or not they're actually the people who hold like our knowledge and expertise may not be the one that's the best fit for every situation. For some people, they won't be able to give that to you because they know, yeah, they may, may get paid more. But if they have to wait 60 days before they do get paid, like that's just not a, that doesn't work for people. I think there's a whole like raft of measures around consultants that need to be looked at in terms of reinforcing inequalities, in terms of decolonizing the systems you know everyone's very much looking at the organization's relationship to country programs partners and rights holders which is fair but as part of that bigger system you also work with consultants of varying um, degrees not just knowledge-based consultants but maybe with other um, themes or thematic areas for example so the whole all of it needs to be looked at more deeply as you rightly say we're in a privileged position and we can deal with those minor setbacks, but it's already a massive barrier to participation for anyone else. Yeah. I mean, it's lucky that I live in a van. Indeed. And that, <laughs> and that you let me, you know, fill up the van at your house. <laughs> <laughs> right. Should we move on to something slightly more optimistic? So <laughs> what, what works? works. <laughs> <laughs> what works? It works to have project managers. So if you're working with different people, so if you've got a team together, which I do think is a really helpful thing, and in some cases, an absolutely necessary thing, particularly if you're from the global north, if you're doing a project in a location that is not your country of residence, um, it's probably going to be better for you to partner with somebody in that country so that I guess we should probably just talk about why that's important. Yeah, why is that important? Because you don't know, and you're just going to be reinforcing colonial views, attitudes by using somebody as a an enumerator when they probably have the skill sets to be doing the exact same thing you're doing. They just can't get hired in the same way because of like HR things, mm. HRE type things, tax type things. They just can't get hired in the same way. 
So I think it's really important. And that's one of the things that does work for us is holding a really hard line on how much we're going to pay other experts and being really deliberate about not saying, okay, oh yes, they're just a data collector. Not that data collection is a just kind of thing. That Mm -hmm. is also a very essential piece, but the skill sets required, the knowledge required around it is very different from another researcher, Mm -hmm. for example, who's doing the kind of analysis beyond and like the construction beyond the kind of single space around collecting data, for example. So our line is we pay consultants in other contexts the same rates as us. Are you summarizing what I'm saying or are you asking that as a question? I'm just saying it. I'm just (laughs) processing that. Because the other side of that coin and the other argument is that people pay the rates that reflect the local economies. Sure. So I'm curious, I think maybe for our listeners too, like what your thoughts are on that, because it comes in a lot in what we're reading about power at the moment, Mm. I think, because the system's already so skewed, like, you know, UN pays more for the drivers than it would take for them to become a doctor in their local community. Yeah. So the extent to which you're paying them and taking them away from a profession that maybe they could have done or may have done in their community that's now vacant, absent that's the other side of the argument, right? Yeah, I just don't like that argument. Why? (laughs) We work in places that are really complex. We work in places that can be in crisis. They're largely in crisis because of stuff that the West did or things that were done long, long, long ago and continue to be reinforced. So I do maintain that some of the challenges that we have, particularly around protracted social conflict in a lot of different countries, are products of colonial behavior (laughs) as a British person. Actually, you should apologize to everybody else. Yeah. uh, Sorry, everyone. (laughs) So I think that the salaries are those salaries because the West screwed things up. I'm trying not to swear because then we can have a clean episode. (laughs) (laughs) I see. So, so I think that is part of it. I think that for an individual who spent time going to university in their country, studying, being employed, doing the things that are around their profession and their interests. If you were to lift that person and drop them into any other country, based on their experience, based on their knowledge, based on their education, they'd be paid X amount. The only reason they aren't is because the cost of living in a particular country is lower. And that is a product of so many other things. I do appreciate the argument that you're creating then these like massive disparities because you've got somebody who's now making shed loads more than what may be proportionate. But I also think that expertise is expertise. We've worked with people in different countries who have more experience than you and I put together. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel right to me to put them on a contract and regardless of what the cost of living is in that country then they're just being paid less. I just don't think that that matters because that's not that person's fault. If they could immigrate to another country, if that was available to whoever, then they would be, you know, making the same Mm. as we would. It's just those systems aren't set up to value their knowledge and experience in the same way. That is my view. And I realize that it's complicated. Yes. And that's why it's hard. And the conversations that you and I had about what our position was going to be on this was that they were hard ones to have. But I think it was just about landing on a position that we both felt comfortable with. And I'm 100% behind the decision that we made. I just think it's quite interesting because the other side of it is 
also quite strong, I think. Like, I think there's... Get out. No, but you know what I mean? It's not like this is a the stance we've taken is a given. Right. So I think that there is an interesting conversation there. And also, we often come back to the fact that the UN or non-profit organisations in certain countries are meant to be temporary. And I'm using air quotes. Yeah. So the extent to which you're paying someone for a short term project or whatever to then leave and have them, you know, maybe integrate back into a salary or a local economy that isn't what's there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't necessarily think the analogy between like a driver and a researcher are necessarily the same because you presumably can be driving whenever you're just for a pocket for a window of time you're driving for a lot more money whereas mm. when you're researching there's only so many things you can research i suppose <laughs> or like there's only so many research projects that you would get involved in i don't know i don't know why i feel like there's a distinction there but like okay. being a paid researcher just feels like there's fewer opportunities than being a driver oh i don't know i think when i think uh, about no go on no I, I think i know what you're thinking so just just say it no just but, <laughs> the, but the places where like yeah the researchers or we we do work with researchers it's saturated with enough organizations internationally that i think it's an ongoing trend do you feel that they are like adequately compensating people for the knowledge skills expertise and then i take that out of just solid academia and we've, okay. we've had yeah. a conversation before about you know where we would land in terms of supporting people's growth and learning journey and at what point we feel like we'd be in a position to be able to and work with people who have different types of skill sets yeah so I don't want to say that it's just necessarily about people having like academic experience because that's not what I believe and listen to whose knowledge really counts for a bit of a rant from us <laughs> primarily me about knowledge and whose knowledge counts so yeah I don't I don't necessarily want to go down that yes, road entirely but. sorry this has been a massive rabbit hole that we might have to cut out of this and put somewhere else because it's really interesting yeah it's very interesting but no I obviously don't agree that they're adequately compensated and I think every organization probably pays differently in the UN perhaps more extreme mm. so there's an inconsistency across all of it but I can't even remember what you said. Sorry. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. Rude. Um, yeah. And I think there's a question. I, I have a bigger question about like per diems, for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we can talk about that. But I think the I think the main bit for us is about deciding what line you're going to hold, anchoring that line to your values and then just like being really upfront with that. Because for us, we said we value the people we work with as equal to us and therefore Maybe it's that we don't want to take a salary cut <laughs> because the alternative would be that we oh, took us. another conversation <laughs> to you. But sorry, going back to it, I did have something to say. I think that the line that we've taken is exactly right, but it has to be married with a reflection on what we're causing and doing and what exactly could happen by taking this approach. So I think very much along the same lines as our feminist principles, just reflecting on the fact that we've chosen someone who is educated or we work with someone who is educated or we work with someone who is from a particular community. And so who are we not working with? Who could we work with next time that's maybe more excluded and so on. So very much just the same conversations we have with the organisations and clients we work with, but on a more micro scale within the team and partnerships that we have. Anyway, going back to what works. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> maybe something I just want to quickly reflect on, and this isn't you know, something we went into an evaluation with knowing that it would work. But 
I think we've come to learn that sometimes the evolution of an evaluation as it moves through the contract is quite important. And I mean that through the evolution of maybe the data collection tools that you use or certain ways of working. And I've often, you know, in the past been quite rigid about the monitoring and evaluation processes I use. You know, we have to use this tool, this data collection method, this is the questions, whatever. And then, you know, that's what we use through the the period, full stop. When actually sometimes other stakeholders may materialise or other lines of inquiry or other tools that are better suited to whatever else has suddenly arisen. And so I think I've learned something that works is being more flexible and echoing that back at your client and the people that you're working with um, as part of your project. So maybe just a very small point on that. Yeah, I completely agree. I think what works is flexibility full stop. Yeah. (laughs) Full stop. Because certainly for me, as somebody who is very much prone to rigid black and white thinking, I found the most amount of discomfort when we had to deviate from a plan because you spend so much time in your proposal doing all this stuff and figuring out what you're going to do. And then you've got your inception phase and that's where you really solidify, codify the approach you're going to take, where you're going to go. I'd feel a lot of discomfort when things were deviating from what we had planned in the inception phase. And it wasn't until I realized that actually it probably should change and it should move because that's the point at which the thing that you're doing, review, assessment, whatever, evaluation, is actually touching other people in a outside of that project group. That's the moment when it like bleeds into the space of the real and people's experiences, etc. And so I think, yeah, having that flexibility for me was a learning point. So yeah, I'd say flexibility on yeah. the whole is Definitely. a good, good one, but not too much flexibility that you get I've walked over a reasonable, <laughs> healthy boundaries, <laughs> flexible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a hard one. <laughs> flexible, healthy boundaries. <laughs> that's a good title for an audio. Okay. Brene, Brene Brown, please don't take that title. Okay. That's ours. It feels like something you, you might take. Also, you- if you're listening. Hi. Hi. (laughs) What else worked? What else worked? (laughs) This isn't coming as easy. Um, What I enjoy... It's much easier to complain than it is to... Yeah, really. Um, What I really enjoy, and especially about working in partnership with you, is the times in which... I think a lot of our analysis came from having really deep and meaningful conversations. Mm. So coming back from interviews or coming back from reading documents or whatever driving somewhere being in a cafe at the workplace where we work um. <laughs> cafe is not gonna like identify us to people They're like the cafe no, I'm like, are you concerned meant, with like, <laughs> um, the place where we work um so, <laughs> it's so weird so a lot of our conversations and, and really deep and meaningful analysis came from just casual conversations about mm. what we were finding and what we were discussing in interviews and so on and I really enjoy that piece because then you start to build on stuff you start to find connections and it can just be a recorded conversation on your phone that then manifests into a paragraph or whatever. And so I think there's a lot of enjoyment in that. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that I've really enjoyed is one that having those conversations I find really productive and useful in the same way that you've mentioned but also when we argue about stuff yeah i find that really really helpful <laughs> <laughs> the time 
mind, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. time it's yeah, like, I it. hate you. <laughs> you hate it. I'm like, let's keep arguing. <laughs> well, because I think we've gotten feedback from clients before on this and that like mm-hmm. what they like is the fact that we challenge each other from different perspectives. You know, it's always very friendly. You're crying. <laughs> my eyes are watering. <laughs> That's like a nice a nice thing is that we can challenge each other. We can have these conversations that I think mean we're working through our bias. We're working mm-hmm. through our kind of blind spots together from different perspectives, which I think helps. But And I also think bringing together what you're talking about before, about the two different perspectives that we bring, thinking about it from a monitoring, evaluation and learning space and a data space and thinking about how all of those things interact with the strategic and programmatic and portfolio space, how they fit together from our unique vantage points we get by having those conversations, which I appreciate is much harder if you're working by yourself as a consultant by yourself. So it's hard to have conversations about like relatively esoteric niche things. Like it's easier when you're in a community of people and you know, you can talk about and bounce ideas around when that community is relatively diverse. Because, you know, get a bunch of M&E people together to talk about a thing. They're all going to see it from the same perspective. Get a bunch of programs people together. They're all going to see that thing from the same perspective. It's about the diversity and the opinions and views and vantage points that I think create sort of rich things that, you know, when we do recommendations and we help facilitate, you know, socialization workshops, we're doing it from two different perspectives of like, here's how you can align your monitoring and your results frameworks to your strategic piece. Whereas if you were just one or the other, you may only have that one, that one thing in your toolbox. It's harder to find a single person who has like enough foundation groundedness in a particular area of work to be able to, to meaningfully do both. Definitely. And as part of that feeding, so, so feeding both of our perspectives into a leadership space, I think is really important for, mm. because either way, you know, leadership needs to get behind your recommendations and what you're saying and have that manifest. So the complementarity of these two things definitely appeals to how leadership can take it forward and, and strategically and to some extent operationally. And I would say that's another thing that works is stakeholder mapping in the inception phase mm-hmm. is a hugely important thing. It doesn't always stop it from happening at the end, but it does help keep things pretty relevant to different people. And it's one of the first exercises that we do when we start a project is figuring out who is a stakeholder of this piece of work, who might be left out of that group, and how might that group be and this work be reinforcing inequality in some fashion because of the way that it's focused on a particular stakeholder group. So I think that that's another piece. And what we generally find is that for us, it's useful to know who the people are who are operating in that space so that by the time we get to the end, we've engaged with them enough so that their views, their unique vantage points are being represented in some way or reflected some way so that they can see where they fit into the bigger piece. Whereas I think if we didn't do that, then you'd say, okay, well, you've got this whole other group of people who are really interested in this, but they're not really connected to it in any fashion. So I think it just helps with the engagement piece and the power piece as well. Yeah, definitely. What else works? Go on. Staying organized, trying to stay on top of things because you're not just organizing yourself, you're organizing a client unless you end up with a particular client. Shout out to Ruth Dawson from Amnesty International UK, who is probably the most organized client we've ever interacted with. (laughs) (laughs) But you're more often than not going to be managing 
somebody else or a whole nother team of people. So if you think as a consultant that you're just going to come in and do your thing and, and leave, that's not necessarily the case because you've got to keep expectations. When I talk to people about what it's like to be a consultant, I'd say it's never about managing the work. It's about managing people and mm. their expectations and their needs. And and being aware of that, you know, your point of contact or project team probably have thousands of other things going on. So th I think there's a uniqueness in people having the space to manage evaluations, reviews and consultants in a really detailed and it's rare to see a position or a role that fully commits to managing that kind of project. And I do think, and maybe this is a more of a pain point, is that the client or that point of contact definitely underestimates how much time they need to manage an evaluation or assessment or a review, 100%. <laughs> Always. I feel like that's the point at which you do like, you need some like surge capacity in mm. to help free up that kind of a role. That's the focal point. Mm. It's never as w well understood what it takes to manage a, a consultant or a team of consultants. Because I think the expectation is as consultants, you just go in and you do your thing and then you leave. Yeah. That's not exactly it. And I don't think that that's how it should be. Because I think then what it means is that the consultant is just coming in and relaying their knowledge. They're, th they're just spewing what's in their head back at you. They're not like engaging mm. with what exists in the space in as detailed or as deep a way as they could if you are also engaging with them and sharing with them and reflecting with them beyond just the, you know, your 45 minute key informant interview or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that works is having a space to collaborate. Yes. For me. Yes. If people use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. <laughs> um, so I completely agree. I think, you know, we use an online platform to have people look at what we're doing in a real time, transparent way. So even if it's just snapshots of our work at the different phases and different stages, the client and or their important stakeholders can go into that space and be have a little update around what it is we're doing which very much echoes our principles of, you know, transparency and also allowing the client theoretically to challenge what we're doing as we go through. Yes. So that the knots or the, the issues don't all arise at the end. Maybe mm. the misunderstandings, because they happen, consultants mis might misinterpret documents or... Not us, but yeah. <laughs> or, you know, may not have a clear picture of how things are in an organisation. So that's a space in which clients can challenge us and vice versa, ultimately. But there is a caveat there that... They have to use it. Yeah. And and so there's a maybe trade-off in that you want your clients to be able to engage with you, but they also have to have the willingness and motivation and time to do so in yeah. that way. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay. Yeah, nice. That's a nice one. What about also the diversity in the output? Yes. Um, yeah. Because... More often than not, our clients want a report, but, you know, 25 to 40 pages on average, I think. We've gone all the way up to 98. Well, <laughs> that too. Um, but it doesn't have to be just the report. Right. And if you come at this with a lens of equity, equality and diversity, yeah. then it's on you to also consider who might want to see these findings or recommendations in a way that they can access. Absolutely. And when you're building a team, if you're bringing people together, think about other peripheral skills that might be relevant. So some of the things that we do in terms of diversification of outputs, we do podcasts for clients. So we'll do kind of special ones that they can keep all for them. That just gives more detail or builds on things that we've found that maybe just don't fit very well within the limitations of the 
the report, the final report, or that builds on stuff that we found particularly interesting. And so when we've been given space to say, okay, well, what did you think that was interesting that you put in the report, but maybe you wanted to build on? Because not everything that you find can get put in the report, right? You you maybe use, we maybe use 30% of the things that we hear or the things that are interesting to us in the report, just because there's just no space to be able to, to do that. Nor do I think that you should, the answer is not necessarily then to just make more space in the report and, and like make it longer. Some things we also do are like animations, which mean that you're able to put them, you can change the language of them, making them more accessible. They're short, sort of bite-sized pieces. I think things like just having the online space open for people to be able to interact with it is another good one. It's not necessarily an output, but it's something that people can always have access to, which I think is helpful. These are things like just beyond the executive summary. We've done videos or we're about to do a video for a client because there's just no time to do a presentation of key findings, which is okay. So sort of like a webinar. I think just thinking about the different ways that, you know, fundamentally ask yourself, how does your organization learn? Are people going to learn by reading the executive summary of a 50 page report, 40 page report, 30 page report? Probably not. Never. Because that's, <laughs> that's how like 3% of the population learn. Yeah. Wild. It's totally wild, but it's always the thing that we do. But think about other ways that people can engage. Is it a community of practice, which is something that we build into some of the pieces of the works, into some of the projects that we do as a way to extend and lengthen learning into different spaces? Like, how does your organization learn? And I appreciate that's a very hard question to answer. And it's a hard thing to know, but it's a good question to ask. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.